Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this great opportunity to come together and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we open your word and see what you can teach us through all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 8. The Lord sent word unto Jacob, and it has lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Maria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them unto cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up an adversary of resin against him and join his enemies together. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. All right. So this little paragraph here is continuing. Remember, last part, the first part of this chapter was about Jesus' coming. It was very messianic. Jesus was going to be born and has come a rod out of the uh, house of Jesse and the increase of the government shall be upon his shoulders and all of that we hear during the Christmas season. And then he goes on, the Lord has sent a word to Jacob and it is lighted or fallen upon Israel. Okay, and remember Jacob is the patriarch of Israel and his name actually was changed to Israel, which means one who prevails with God. So uh, it says God sent a word to Jacob and it has fallen upon Israel and all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria and shall say in their, in their pride and the stoutness of the heart. So here he says that all the people shall know even Ephraim, which is one of the northern, northern tribes, and the northern nation is sometimes called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim. Okay, we keep going over this so we kind of know this when we, and in the book of Isaiah, he often calls the northern kingdom Ephraim. So that's Isaiah. Isaiah often calls the northern kingdom Ephraim. He's not the only one, but that is his, apparently his favorite title for of the northern kingdom and he says the Syrians shall hear of the uh, Samaria shall hear about all this as well and in their pride and their stoutness of heart okay their their arrogance <laughs> they're going to say in verse 10 the bricks are fallen down but we will build with hewn stones the sycamores are cut down but we will change them to cedars now the bricks falling down in that area, they oftentimes made bricks out of mud and straw. And then they would bake them, and those were not real strong <laughs> building materials. Uh, if you imagine, if you build your house out of mud and the rains fall down heavy enough, it's going to turn the mud back into mud. Uh, and we see that all the time around here. The hard clay soil, given enough rain, turns into a, to a mess. Well, that's what this is. It says you've built your house out of these mud bricks and they're falling down. And in their pride and their arrogance, they say, no problem, we'll just, we'll just hew the stones. We'll, we'll shape stones and, and make our buildings out of the, hewn, the, the cut stones. Well, if they were able to use cut stones in the first place, they would have used them. All right? The, the straw and mud is something that you used as, as a last resort. You didn't, have the, you didn't have the funds, didn't have the ability to go get stone. And then the next one's even funnier. You've cut down the sycamore trees and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to change them into cedar trees. Okay, now that would be a pretty neat trick. 
we're going to cut down sycamore trees and we're going to put up cedar boards. <laughs> uh, but again, he's saying your pride and your arrogancy. How many times have you heard people in their pride and arrogancy say just dumb things? Okay, might even be towards sin. I can go and drink all night long and I can go and drive home with no problem and they end up being into a wreck because of their pride and their and they're self-deceiving, and this is exactly what this statement basically is. It's self-deception. And we do this a lot, even as Christians. We, human beings have a great capacity to lie to ourselves, okay? Eve looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and saw that it was good for food and took and ate it. And if she had been smart, she would have been nowhere near that tree, never looking at the fruit. And like I've said in various times, I have this picture that her and Adam were probably around that tree a lot. Well, what's wrong with this tree? It sure looks good. I uh, wonder why God didn't, said we couldn't, couldn't uh, eat of it and walked away. Next day, wow, that, that fruit really looks good. I wonder why God isn't letting us eat of, that, eat of that fruit and walked away. I think at the time Eve was there, it was, they were spending more time at the tree than anywhere else. What's wrong with this tree? Have we ever done that with God? God, why did you say, no, I can't do this? You know, God, it just doesn't make sense. You, know, you said, don't do this. It does, everybody's doing it, and it looks like it's not a problem. They seem to be doing okay. Why are you saying that, don't do this? And then we go to what Jesus said, and he makes all the laws even more strict. You know, if you're angry with a brother without cause, you've committed murder in your heart. If you lust after somebody, you've committed adultery. Jesus rate, you know, kicked the levels up to a very high standard. And, you know, we look at it and go, God, you know, because we hear it all the time. Guys will say, it doesn't hurt to look. Well, probably doesn't, depending on how you're looking. <laughs> just to look? No, but most of your looks are not yeah. just looking. And I don't know if girls do that or not. I just know the guys do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would assume that they did, but I can't speak for the... For, for women in this. Yeah, I don't know that the guys do. Um, you know, but here they're, they're saying, you know, uh, the bricks are falling apart. We'll just change them into hewn stone. The, we're going to cut down sycamore trees, and we're going we're gonna to use cedars to build. And, you know, the garbage that we put into our life and think that we can make good buildings with, or good, good building on our life, and we're told in, in the New Testament be careful what we build on the foundation of our salvation. Jesus is the foundation, and we're to let him build upon, our, upon that foundation. And so often we take, you know, wood, hay, stubble, whatever in our life and, our, and what we can do, and we build this supposedly good-looking building, <laughs> and the first storm comes along and knocks it over. The first fire comes along and burns it down. And God is saying, you know, hey, I have, a, I have much better building materials. <laughs> Gold, silver, and, and precious stones. And so here we see this process. And verse 11, it says, Therefore the Lord shall set up an adversary of resin against him, and resin, remember, is the king of Syria. Um, and uh, we know that because last chapter we talked about him, and the chapter before that we talked about him. Ezra talks about him. Nehemiah talks about him. Um, he is the king of Syria one of their adversaries, but God says, I am going to raise up an enemy against Rezin and join his enemies together. They're going to make a confederacy against him. 
at this particular time, Syria is a mighty nation. They're not, they're not owning the world like Nebuchadnezzar will with uh, Babylon or even as Pharaoh did with Egypt or as um, the Assyrians will do a little later. But he is a pretty strong nation. He's, he's a formidable foe and he keeps fighting against Israel, especially the northern kingdom. And God says, I'm going to bring an entire confederacy against them. Verse 12, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall def devour Egypt with open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out. So it says, God is bringing judgment on you. You're going to have the Syrians up from the north and the Philistines down in the, down in the south. And Israel is going to be between them. Israel frequently over, over the history of their existence has been in the center of the battles. There comes a time when Nebuchadnezzar is going to fight against Egypt. And it would be no problem if Israel didn't sit between the two. <laughs> they, you know, Israel would have been happy just to say, okay, you two fight it out and, and have fun and just leave us alone. But most of the battles happened in Israel, <laughs> Israel's land because the two armies would meet in the center and battle. And later on, they're going to have that same problem. They, keep get, they seem to always be in the middle because Israel is at the crossroads of the of three continents. If you know the Middle East, you've got Asia, which comes in with roads from the, from the east. You've got Africa that comes across that area. And you've got Europe that comes in through Turkey. And they all meet right there at Israel and the uh, Fertile Crescent, the Mesopotamian Valley. All of that area is a big by crossroads for the three major continents of that area. And every time there's war, that area, if it involves multiple continents, that area is right in the center of it, if not being part of, of it. So God says, I'm going to bring an enemy against you, and you're going to be pinched between two, two battlefronts. And you know, if you're somebody who has ever studied military history, you understand two battlefronts is hard to deal with. Okay? Uh, Napoleon ended up with two battlefronts and lost the war. Hitler ended up with two battle, battlefronts and lost the war. Uh, America is one of the few places that has actually had two big battlefronts and managed to win a war in World War, in war, world war II because we fought in the Pacific and the Atlantic. And we managed to pull it off, but most countries did not. And the only reason we pulled it off is because there were two big oceans between us and the enemy. So that we never, never had to cover an entire long line of defense. But here they say God's going to send. And then it ends with, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is still stretched out. God, when he moves against his children, will stretch out his hand until they finally repent. And over and over again, we look at these people that they go to God, and they might even cry to God, but they don't usually repent. Last night when we were talking about judges, the people of Israel had not repented. They were crying because of their losses, but they didn't repent until after the second battle. And then they started making their offerings and repenting and coming to God. So often, people are not repenting. They're not sorry for what they're done. They're sorry for getting caught. And I used to ask that of my kids a lot. Are you, are you really sorry, or are you sorry that you got caught? Now, they learned after a while to tell me they were sorry, even when they were sorry they got caught. 
But you know, most people are sorry they got caught. They're not really sorry that they did wrong. And this is something I have shared with people. Don't tell me you're sorry if you don't really mean it, because I don't want to hear it. If you're telling me sorry and you mean it, I, then, I'll, that, then it's fine. Because I've had parents make their kids say they're sorry, and I'm going, you know what, I don't want it. If your kids really mean that they're sorry, I'll accept it. But if they're saying sorry just because you're making them say sorry, I really don't want to hear it. I know you're trying to teach them manners and, and all of that, but it doesn't mean anything. Uh, it, people will tell their kids, tell, you know, tell your brother you're sorry. Sorry! <laughs> you know, uh, I don't think you're sorry. Well, you said to say sorry. I said it. Yeah. Uh, and God is always looking for true repentance of heart. And this is where it comes down to, God, I'm, I'm sorry, I repent. I turn away from my sin and I turn back to you. And when, God, when we do that to God, he says, okay, fine, now I'll, lift, now I'll lift off my judgments. And Israel, here he says, God's hand is still to them. Verse 13, for the people turn not unto him that smite them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. The ancient and the honorable, he is the head and the prophet that teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they are led of them that are destroyed. Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For every one is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. We have a refrain here coming out. Uh, so God, God keeps using this statement. But again, he said, the people have not turned back. So they have not turned to God who smites them. Okay? This is going to be what, ha what happens in the tribulation period. God sends judgment after judgment after judgment upon the people. 20 of, 21 of them listed in, in the book of Revelation, the specific judgments. And he keeps saying the people do not turn away from their sins. They do not recognize God. And God says, here, I've, I've sent you, I've put you between two battlefronts, two enemies, and you're not turning, you're not repenting, you're not seeking me. And how many times do we, when God puts a judgment on us, try to hard to work through it? God, I, uh, you might be doing this to me, God, but I am going to figure out how to get through this. We might even go so far as saying God did it. But I am going to figure out how to get through this. I'm going to make sure I do it. And eventually, we hopefully break down and pray. Uh, sometimes it takes us a long time. In verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord shall cut off Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. And those are, those are idioms for complete. Okay, your head and tail kind of refers to the, the chief of your people to the weakest of your people. And the next verse he says, your heads are your leaders uh, and the, the tail are the prophets that are telling you lies. And this is one of the things that Isaiah, Jeremiah, many of the prophets had to deal with. There were false prophets telling these kings that everything was going to be okay. God's judging you, but God is on our side, the false prophets would say. And there would be lots of false prophets and very few real prophets. And they would be battling with each other all the time. And the kings loved to hear those false prophets. Everything's going to be good. Everything's, everything's going to be great. In our day and age, it's all these churches that aren't teaching the word of God. There's lots of them out there. 
There's lots of churches that don't teach God's word, don't, don't say God's words, and they'll tell you that everything is good, everything is great. Just, just have faith, and everything will turn out good. Don't, don't worry about repentance. Don't worry about the blood of Christ. Don't worry about him being the only way to heaven. Everything is good. And we've got tons of churches that teach that kind of stuff. And it's sad. It really is sad that they call themselves Christian churches and then deny Jesus. And that's the part that bothers me most. They deny Jesus. They won't go into the word of God. They won't go into the blood of Christ. They won't go into calling sin, sin. They, they say that all, all kinds of ways get you to heaven. Just do a lot of good things and you'll be okay. And so many people teach that. And that's what he's saying here. That You've got a lot of false prophets, a lot of false teachers. He says, the ancient and the honorable, he is the head. And the prophet it t- teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. The leaders of the nation were leading their people into sin. The elders, even in many cases, the priests and the Levites were leading people into sin. And in our day, we see the same thing. Our leaders of our country are making bad decisions. The leaders of many churches are making these same bad decisions. They're not going to God's word and say, this is what God says. And this is why I always encourage this. If you're going to counsel somebody, make sure it fits into the scriptures. What does the scripture say about whatever you're talking about? And, you know, it's so important. Are we loving one another? Are we honoring one another? Are we edifying one another? Or are we tearing each other down? And a lot of churches, we get a lot of tearing down of one another. You know, and it's the way of the flesh. It feels real good. I really got them. They hurt me and I got back. And God's saying, well, you were really supposed to be loving them. You were supposed to learn from this to be more like me. And, you know, when we listen to God, we kind of cringe down and go, okay, God, I blew it again. The problem is many times we don't listen to God. You know, we just look at somebody and says, well, I really don't like that person. I don't want them around anyway, so I'm going to make sure they don't come back. And we may not be that blunt in our decisions, but you, isn't it true when we start really going after somebody, that's what we're telling them? You know, you know, don't want you around here. You know, and I always want people to be around God's people. Number one, we need them. <laughs> you know, as much as they can be irritating sometimes, we need those people but they also need to see the love of God reached out to them. That becomes our job. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love one for another. And we've talked about the disciples having to love one another. Matthew, the collaborator with Rome, Simon the Zealot, trying to you know, bring those two together? <laughs> you know, you know, Hard-working people and Pharisee-type you know, Pharisee people all being brought together. God loves to bring opposites together and say, Now I want you to love each other as I love you. Not easy sometimes. Very hard sometimes to do. But God says, my love will shine through you. And people will be amazed when they look at it. And this is what's going on. The leaders are telling lies. The priests are telling lies. They're telling people that you're okay. This isn't a judgment from God. These are just bad people on both of our borders. we're, we're, we're basically good people. We've been, yeah, sure, we're worshiping idols on Monday, uh, Sunday through, through Thursday, but we're worshiping God on, on Saturday, so no problem. You know, uh, you're, you're reading your Bible once a month, whether you need to or not. You're, you're okay. You know, these kind of things were going on, and they were going, 
no problem. And Isaiah's coming along and saying, yes, big problem. <laughs> God's judging us. Recognize the judgment for what it is. And in our lives, we need to be careful to say, and this is why I said, we want to be careful anytime bad things happen to us. The very first thing we want to look at is, do I deserve what's coming in my way? Because all of us do enough sin that it probably is deserved. If we're pretty, you know, confessed up to date and everything and, and following God, then we go, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me from this event? So we want to be careful as we look at bad things happening. Not every bad thing is a judgment from God. Some of it is trying to teach us a lesson. Are you going to depend on me? Are you going to follow me? Is <laughs> God saying. So we want to be very careful. Job's friends came to him and instantly said, Job, you are a really awful person. Otherwise, these bad things wouldn't have happened to you. They did not know what was going on. They did not know, you know, and we have, and like we've said so many times, we have the advantage of having Job 1 through 3 to know what was going on. Because otherwise, we'd have said the same thing to Job. Job, you must really be bad to have lost all your family and all your wealth and your health. How bad could you have been? Yeah, what did you do to make God so mad at you? We need to be careful that we don't judge others, and we have to be careful that we don't judge ourselves. Because oftentimes we judge ourselves awfully hard and fail to forgive ourselves. And this is something we've got to be very careful. God forgives us. We need to forgive ourselves. And how many times do we dwell in the past mistakes and won't forgive ourselves for the past mistakes? And God said, that's under the blood. Get, get, get up here where I'm at. And we're still back there wallowing in the, the manure of the forgiven sins. And God's saying, uh, you're not a pig. Get over here and get cleaned up and put on the righteousness of Christ and leave the past behind. It's under the blood. Now, we need to get to this place where we understand the sins of the, of the people that have hurt us are under God's blood, and our past is under the blood, and any mistake we're going to make is under the blood. Any mistake the people that we're dealing with, especially if they're, if they're Christians, is under the blood. And we need to start loving one another and being forgiving of one another and saying, God, you work in their life. You work on making them who you want them to be. And it says, your leaders are gone astray. And verse 17 says, Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall he have mercy on the fatherless and the widows, for everyone is a hypocrite and evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For in all this the hand of the, his hand is stretched out still. And this is pretty serious. In the young men, God was not going to take any joy. But you notice this? One of the things God says is he is the protector of the widow and the fatherless. Here the people are so bad that, Jesus, that God is telling them, even the widow and the fatherless I am not going to have mercy on. How bad could you be? <laughs> that God is going to say, even, those, even the orphans and the widows I'm not going to take care of. Because all through the scriptures, he says, this is true, true relationship. Take care of the widows. Take care of the fatherless. Take care of them because God says he hears their cries all the time. And here God's saying, you guys are so bad, I'm not even listening to them. You know, that's pretty bad. Because even they were not following after God, apparently. This is a pretty bad time. Whatever, wherever <laughs> Isaiah is in this particular part of history, because his book doesn't really go in order necessarily. Wherever he is in history, Israel is not behaving. Probably the last king, because the last king he was under was an evil king that was going to bring 
be very quick to bring judgment within a few generations after. Uh, so they're bad. They are so bad that even the widows and the orphans are not calling on God. And God says, fine, you want to be, you want to be that way? Well, they were calling, because it says, calls them a hypocrite. God, we're going to live the way we want, but God, can you please give us, <laughs> you know, we're not going to pay attention to you at all, God. We're not going to obey any of your rules, but God, can you provide? And how many people do that? We see them all the time coming into the church for, for various things. Have no intention of living for God, no intention of following his rules, but God, we need help. And we need to be careful of that because God will not allow that kind of help to really get forward and be blessed. God's going to say, huh, you, you, want, you want to not honor me? I'm going to reach out my hand and touch you. And this is something that is serious for us to understand. When we disobey, God will judge. As we've said over and over, there is consequence for sin. The people are so evil that the consequence is so bad. He says the leaders are bad. The prophets are bad. And by the way, even the orphans and the, and the widows are bad. That's pretty bad. You know, that is a pretty bad nation to be part of. Nobody is following God in this nation at this point in time. And when I say nobody, I, there's always a remnant. There's always some people that were following God. But as a nation, they were not following God. Very much like Europe and America are today. Where there's a remnant, there's, there's Christians out there, they're following God. But overall, the people are not following God. They're calling good, bad, bad, good. Anything that God says to do, they say don't do. Anything that God says don't do, they do. And this is where our world is today. And we wonder why God isn't taking care of even the weak and the poor. Because they're being hypocrites. They're not, they're not following after God either. Because God is always saying, you know, the, the widow. The widow usually knew that they needed God. God, I have nobody else. I'm coming to you. The orphans knew that they needed God. And he says, you're a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty serious accusation. Verse 18, for the wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and the thorns. It shall kindle the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like the lifting up of the smoke. Though the wrath of the Lord of hosts is, is the land darkened. And the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. He shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. And he shall eat on the left hand, and he shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh, Ephraim, and, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So he goes, the wickedness burns as a fire. You know, Wickedness destroys. And that's part of the consequence of it. You know, we, we commit sin and we think that we're going to be happy with whatever sin. And you know, people will go, well, I don't think I, don't think I sin because I, I enjoy it. Well, baloney, if you didn't enjoy it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. And we know that God says that sin has pleasure for a season. Now that sin may not have pleasure very long, and it may turn to bite you very quick. 
but you know, we, we sin because we enjoy the sin or we've done it so long that now we're addicted and can't get out of it. But we started because it was enjoyable for some reason. Uh, people started with their first cigarette before they got addicted because it made them look cool with the crowd of people that all smoked. Uh, I can't believe anybody ever thinks it tastes good. I tried one cigarette one time and it tasted awful. Uh, but it makes you feel cool. People, people seem to think it's a good thing. I don't know if that's as much true today as it used to be. But you know, or you take that first drink because everybody's doing it. And, it, and they'll tell you, well, it gets rid of your inhibitions. <laughs> yeah, it gets rid of your inhibitions so bad that you really, you do all kinds of stuff you never wanted to do. Yeah, but that first that first drink might just be the one that kind of opens up the shy person, and you know, and probably feels good if you can get past the taste, you know, uh, to, at first. But then it bites back, and it burns, and it has all kinds of long-term repercussions, within within including the possibility of becoming addicted to it. All right, and it, God says the sin has. A burning, the evil, the the unrighteous has a burning, and it shall devour the briars and thick and thorns, you know, and shall kindle the thickets of the forest. It shall mount up like the lifting up of the smoke, and this is exactly the way big fires start. All right, forest fires start down in the thicket layers with the dry leaves and the and the easy to burn branches, and eventually can get hot enough to burn the the trees. Um, Farmers oftentimes for years have used fire to clear their fields, you know, their, uh, the briars and the, and, the, and the thorns. They would many times just burn them uh, if it was wet enough to control the fire. Uh, out here in the West area, we don't burn, burn uh, our fields too much. When I lived in Sacramento, the rice farmers every year would burn, burn the rice fields and then they'd flood them to get rid of, the, rid of the fire, and it would be smoky and, and everything. So it's still done to this day to burn away. But God says, this is what happens. The fire of your sin can start burning things you never even meant for it to burn until it becomes a raging inferno. And it says the smoke is lifted up. You can see the smoke from a long ways. Uh, every once in a while, we'll have great big fires in the central... California and the smoke will start coming all the way over to or Southern California and we'll get the smoke all the way over here. Uh, that's how big some of these fires get. And God is saying the fire gets out of control very easily. Sin gets out of control in our life so easy. Whatever that sin might be, it really doesn't matter what sin it is. Let's, make a, let's take a lie that people, you know, a sin that a lot of people think is small, a lie. How long does it take a lie to really grow and get big? Especially if people are interrogating you about it. All of a sudden, you have to answer for the lie, which usually means tell more lies to give a reason for, you know, well, why did you do that? Well, uh, <laughs> let me make up another lie. And before long, you've got such a big lie that you can't even control and, under, and remember what all, you, what all you told. You know, how does gossip get out of, out of control so easy? You know, you know, somebody says something that's just a little off or maybe not even off at all. And by the time you hear it again, man, that story has changed. You know, the, more, the more times it's been repeated, the worse it gets. 
because everybody's got to put their own little juicy tidbit on it. You know, well, you know, uh, I know that all I heard was that they did this, but you know why they did this? You know, I'm going to tell you why. I have no idea why, but I'm going to tell you why they did it. Oh, man, is that why they, you know, why the person, you know, and they add to it and they add to it. And sin gets bigger and bigger over time. The people that are into alcohol and drugs and, and even with sex, illicit sex, it doesn't, it doesn't stop in the small area. The, I don't know of anybody who decided, well, I'm going to just become a drunk tomorrow. It's a long process where they start drinking and for years don't even consider themselves a drunk, even though many others do, because they just start drinking all the time. Or somebody who gets so addicted to drugs that they're losing everything for it. Now, I can't even imagine what it would be. I can't afford to drink or, or do drugs, and I can't imagine, and I know they can't either. But they'll do anything to get that next drink, the next hit, and you know, sell themselves, sell everything they have, steal, whatever it takes, beg, borrow, and steal to get the next part of that sin because it has so addicted them. We need to be careful, and God's saying, don't allow this to happen because he says, my hand will be reached out against you. And we never feel the comfort. And most people are trying to feel an emptiness in their heart. And we keep talking about this. We look at people that seem to have everything. The movie star, the, act, you know, the, the, the great singer, the, the athlete who has millions of dollars, has the big mansion on the, on, the, on the hill with lots of cars and servants. And then we find out they blow their, they blow their brains out because they're not happy. And everybody's looking at them. Well, how could they not be happy? I'd be happy if I had that stuff. No, you wouldn't. We may think we do because we don't have it. But if you end up talking to anybody who has it without God, they're still not happy. Because things are never going to fulfill us. Solomon told us that things are never going to fulfill us. And he tried everything. You know, he bought everything. He went into alcohol. He went into the dr drugs of his day. He, he had the women. He had, he had activities as a government. We're going to build parks. We're going to build, build all kinds of buildings. And none of those things ever, ever have. And he literally tried everything in his lifetime to fill the spot that God wasn't filling. And his answer in the end was vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And he kept saying there's nothing new under the sun. And we still, to this day, find that people think they get everything they want, and they find out it's not enough. And there are a lot of Christian leaders that would say, God, give, it, give them everything they want so they realize they don't have anything, and maybe they'll turn to you. But unfortunately, they don't usually turn to God either, because they just feel, I've tried everything. Well, you haven't tried God. You haven't given God his due and his chance. And you know, there are many people that are even Christians that don't really give God his chance. They go, God, you know, uh, I tried you. And that bothers me. In the 60s and 70s, there used to be this big, try God. No, you don't try God. You commit to God, lock, stock, and barrel, you know, everything. You don't just try God. God isn't, God isn't uh, you know, buy this in a 30-day money-back guarantee if you're not happy. God says, no. Commit to me, and you will be happy. And that's the good news. If we are totally committed to God, we will be satisfied. 
We may not be happy all the time, but there'll be that inner joy. There'll be that inner peace. God, you're in control. No matter when it happens in my life, I'm excited because God is in control. He promises that everything is for good. He's in control. And you know what? I can be absolutely sure that whatever he sends my way is for my good in the long run. <laughs> it may not feel like good in this world. It may not feel like it's good when it's happening. And when somebody like Job is in pain and in and sickness, there's nothing good about that time. That is just endure and find out what God has in plan. And there are times when we go, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to trust in you. And that gives you great peace. At least it does me. It gives me great peace to just look at God. God, I don't know what you're doing, but you are good. And the statement, God is good all the time and all the time, God is good, is very much something we want to remember. Even when it looks like God's doing things that have no sense and it can't be possibly good, given enough time, we'll, we'll accept, understand that God had a good plan for it. It may be just so other people see us being devoted to God. It might be to teach us something. It might be to teach us to be more have more empathy toward other people who are going through hard times. Because the hardest thing in the world is for people who have been blessed by God most of their life to have empathy for those who are having trouble. So oftentimes God says, okay, let me give you a little bit of hardship in your life so that you'll have a little bit of empathy for the people that have hard times. And so we just look at it and say, God, I accept. Don't know what you're trying to teach me. You know, and I share all the time, sometimes the people that we want to avoid the most are probably the ones we need to go out and embrace the most. Because God is saying, I want you to show love. They need to see love. People need to see that you're loving that person. Is it easy? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's difficult to love somebody who is not worthy of love. But you know, God loves us and we weren't worthy of love. While we were God's enemy, Christ died for us. I can't even imagine what that, how much love that is. I get a small piece of it as he says, love this person that's hard to love. But you know, I don't, I don't have too many enemies. I've never thought of anybody except one person as an enemy. And he was my roommate in Bible college <laughs> for a while. Uh, and he was the reason I almost got kicked out of Bible college because I failed the test. Because uh, one day I jumped out of bed and attacked him. <laughs> uh, but you know, they're very Christian of me. But so was getting about two hours of sleep for, for a month and a half. Because uh, you know, he would come in while I was sleeping and crank up his stereo. So. And I was very patient for about six months before I was ready to take his head off. Uh, now, it wasn't the right thing to do. You know, I probably should have gone to the dean of students or something and said, hey, you know, one, one of the two of us need a room change. I like my room. Can you get rid of him? <laughs> but I'm willing to change my room if it comes down to it. But I didn't handle it that way. Uh, you know, and we all learn lessons. We all learn lessons sometimes the hard way. <laughs> but God is saying, I have a plan. And this was long before I understood that everything that God sends my way is his plan. God has worked with me for years to say, God, you have a plan. Don't understand it. God, I don't even like it sometimes. <laughs> But you've got a plan. Help me to be satisfied. 
And I'm not saying it's easy. It takes a long time to get there. All we can do is be able to say, God, you, you're good. You've got a plan. You, you're going to do something good out of this. It may not even be for my good. But it may be for somebody else watching me endure. How many times have you been able to look at somebody and saying, God, I don't know how they're getting through that, but I am kind of uh, encouraged <laughs> if they can do it, maybe with your help I can do it. I know that happens because I've heard it happen before. You've seen it happen in the testimonies of the biographies where people look and say, if they can do it, I can do it. And that's sometimes the only reason we go through the hardship. Not because it's for our, you know, that we are good. When we're in the middle of pain, we are not to enjoy the pain. If we're enjoying the pain, there's something wrong, there's something deeper wrong with us. All right? But we are to say, God, help me endure this through your strength. You've got a plan, and I want, to, I want to see what your plan is. Not, okay, God, thank you. You've got my arm bent back behind my back. You've broken both my legs, and, and, you've, and you've kicked me down, and you've taken me. God, I am just so happy I'm in this position. You know, if you're that way, there's something else wrong with you. you know, that's when you go, God, thank you for allowing this to happen. Help me to endure, and help me see whatever it is that you're trying to teach me. And God says, that's my child. Thank you. You know, and we're to give thanks in everything. Okay? We're not necessarily to be thankful for the pain, but we're to give thanks in the pain. God, don't, don't know, but thank you. Thank you that I'm going to be used as an example of faithfulness. Thank you that I'm going to be learning to, to endure whatever it is you're trying to teach me, God. Thank you. But God, it would be nice if this was over sometime soon. Whatever it might be for the strength to get through it, for the ability to endure. God, thank you for that. I'm going to be a comfort for somebody else. Whatever it might be, we can thank him for the results of what we're going through. And say, God, thank you. Thank you that you've decided that I am worthy of suffering for you. Remember, this is in the book, in the New Testament, this was the disciples' refrain over and over. They'd preach the gospel, they'd get beat, and they would come back and say, thank God I was worthy of suffering for Christ. Now, they didn't say, thank God for the suffering, but thank God I was worthy of this suffering. God, you, you thought I was doing a good enough job that you decided that I could handle the punishment with your help. Thank you. What would change in our life if that was our attitude toward suffering? Too many times it's, God, I'm sick and tired of this suffering. Would you get, get it out of my life? And God's saying, well, I'm trying to teach you something. No, God, I want it out. I don't want anything to do with it. Many times we spend more time grumbling and griping about this suffering than to just embrace it and say, God, I don't, uh, whatever you're trying to teach me, thank you. Thank God, you know, thank you, God, you find me worthy of suffering. You know, that should have been Job's attitude, even though he finally gets there. And it was his first attitude. His wife says, curse God and get it over with. Now, many people say that she was being very sacrilegious. Some people have said, and I kind of believe this, that she might have just been heartbroken. The love of her life is suffering drastically. Suffering for no reason that she can see and just says, hey, you know, Joe, why don't you just curse God and let him kill you, if it, you know, rather than go through all this pain? It could very well be that she was just trying, her love for him was saying, just get it over with. Just give up. And that's when he answered, shall we take blessings from God and not these bad things from God. 
said, naked I came into this world, naked I'll leave. And he understood. You know, uh, and up till, up till the friends that helped him get in a bad place, he was doing a good job. Okay? Lost the kids, lost his wealth, lost his health, and he's, you know, wife telling him to curse God, and he's okay. Gets his friends that hammer him for a period of time and doesn't do so well. <laughs> you know, and with friends like Job, who needs enemies? You know, and this is why we as Christians should exhort one another. You know, and how many times as Christians we see somebody having a hard time? Well, what have you been doing that you deserve this stuff? And we might not be that blunt, but we oftentimes will leave people with that impression that we're judging them. Uh, well, what have you been doing? You know, why, why, isn't, it, why isn't God blessing you? Uh, don't understand why God isn't blessing you right now. And it's like, where did we get this picture that God says that everything was going to be a rose garden and, and you know, that everything was going to be good? And that's a falsehood that we're taught by many Christians. That come to Jesus and everything is going to be perfect from that point on. Well, the one thing I've learned from reading biographies, the one thing I've learned from reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, one thing I learned from reading the scriptures is being a Christian is not a bed of roses. There is going to be hardship. There's going to be trials. And Jesus himself said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. They hated Jesus enough to kill him. So the world should be hating us. And when it's not, that's actually when we should probably be worried. When the world is not hating us. And where everything is all perfect, we're not doing something right. In the in the iron, behind the Iron Curtain and Bamboo Curtain, many of the Christians back behind those places that were persecuted would look at America and their question was, what is wrong with American Christians that they're not suffering? They didn't understand it. Because they looked at it, the disciples suffered, the prophets suffered, Jesus said they hate me, they're going to hate you, and Jesus suffered. And they would look to America we're looking at them and going, oh, they're suffering so bad. They're looking at America and going, what's wrong with American Christians? Why aren't they suffering? And you know, sometimes I wonder the same thing myself. Why aren't we suffering? Most of the time, it's because we're not really sharing God. We're sharing some watered-down version at the best. You know, we will be careful not to say things that offend. You know what? Uh, are you going to heaven? I think so. Oh, okay, walk away. Oh, what do you mean you think so? You either know that you're in a relationship with God or you don't know. Well, you know, nobody can really know. Yes, we can know absolutely. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned and death is the response. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are headed to hell. The world does not like to hear that. And when we share that with them, they get a little upset unless the Holy Spirit is working on them. And we see this over and over, that people have lost their jobs over this. And that doesn't mean go be, go be as blunt and brutal as possible, but it also means we can't be sugarcoating the gospel with people. When God gives us an opportunity to open our mouth and give the gospel, we need to give the gospel. And the gospel is, you're a lost sinner if you don't know Jesus. <laughs> okay? You're a sinner and you're headed to hell. Oh, that is so narrow. Absolutely. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. What about all the other religions? Well, they're all headed to hell. Well, you, you think yours is perfect? Absolutely. Jesus said. <laughs> you know, 
Well, that's so, that's so narrow. That's so intolerant. Absolutely, it's narrow and intolerant. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to agree with them. It kind of bugs them. You know, because they give all these accusations that are supposed to make you go weak at the knees, but you know when you say, you know what, you're right. It is, it is narrow. It is intolerant. Because that's what Jesus said. There's one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. Not doing good works, not all people go to heaven, you know, whatever, whatever you want to believe, none of that is true. You've got to believe the truth. And when we preach and teach the truth, a lot of people get angry with us. We get a lot of people who come to church and they'll hear me teach the gospel message and they won't come back again. You know, and I can't help that. Sin is sin. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You know, if you're angry with a brother or sister and you say you're a Christian, the love of God is not dwelling in you and you need to analyze, do you know God? Being angry all the time and, and being a Christian are not compatible. Because Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. And we need to look at this. If we have a sin in our life that's going on all the time and we don't have a, a bit of conviction for it, we need to look at our life and say, do I know God? You know, we, you know, we should be able to, and I hear it so many times from people, you know what, God won't let me get away with anything. <laughs> oh, praise God, I am so happy that God's not letting you get away with it. Are you growing yet? Have you, have you gotten victory? Over? No, not yet, but I sure feel guilty and convicted. Well, at least you're in the right step. <laughs> I am very concerned when somebody can sin and not have conviction of their sin. I find somebody who's always angry with others in the church and angry with other people and they're not convicted of it I look at it and say God are they your child I know they claim to be but are they you know and it's one thing if they're convicted you know it's and I don't know if they're convicted deep down in their heart that's between them and God but you know anger and unforgiveness are partial are problems that a lot of people face and they've got to recognize that that's sin Unforgiveness and anger are deep sins. And you know, when God lists the sins in, in Proverbs, he, he lists lying lips and gossip in, his, in, his, in th seven things he hates in two places in, in uh, Proverbs. Now, now we as, as human beings would not put those in our top sins. We would put murder, theft, homosexuality, adultery. You know, and if we lift, listed uh, gossip and sin, it would be so far down the list that it's like, uh, these are not really big problems. And God says, these are huge problems. Why? Because those ones really hurt at the soul. When you say things, you know, we have this saying, we teach it to our, our kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a lie we teach our, teach our kids. Sticks and stones, they cause bruises and cuts and they heal. Now you might get a scar out of the deal. How many people have had words said to them as a child that still haunt them when they're 60, 70, 80 years old? They're still haunted by words that their parents or, or friends said to them. God understands words are powerful, which is why we as Christians are exhorted to encourage one another, to build one another up. And you know what? It doesn't mean and build them up that we say, okay, your sins are okay. But we also aren't saying, well, you're worthless. 
You know, you're, you're, you'll never be worth anything because of your sin. God's saying, they're my children, build them up. And it might be as simple as, God loves you. The power of that statement in people's lives can cause the conviction. God loves you. And I've said that to so many people, and they go, well, if you knew what I was doing, you'd know that God doesn't, doesn't love me, and I'm going, God loves you. Matter of fact, let me quote one of these great scriptures. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God did it for you. But you don't understand, I'm really bad. God loves you. It doesn't matter what you've done. You know, sometimes that's our greatest gift that we can give to the lost world. God loves you. Oh, no, if you, you know, and, and the other one I love, can't come to church. The roof would fall in and the walls would cave in. Oh, they're, they're, especially in our church. Our church has been here for over 100 years. It is going to stand if you walk in the doors. I walk in the doors and fall back. <laughs> you know, so are we looking at helping one another? Are we building one another up? Are we edifying one another? Are we doing it to ourselves? Now, I am surprised how many people refuse to forgive themselves. Because, you know, to me it's very arrogant. Because they'll even say, God can forgive me, but I can't forgive you. Or I can't forgive me. When we watched, uh, uh, I can only imagine movie, remember when he went back and saw his dad, and his dad had been saved, and he goes, why can't God forgive me and a son who's supposed to be the Christian and is the Christian, but you know, he's been so hurt. He says, God can forgive you, but I can't forgive you. You know, what an arrogant statement that is. The God of the universe who you've actually offended can forgive you, but I can't. We need to be so careful. We need to be able to apply that to ourselves. God forgives me. I should be able to forgive myself. God's the one that can change the past or the future. I can't. And he says, I'm not going to change it. You're going to learn from it. I'm going to forgive you. you know, we need to learn to forgive one another. We need to take God's life and pour it out on others. Verse 20, And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall eat on the left hand and he shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. <laughs> okay. This is a picture of grabbing hold of sin and consuming on sin and never being satisfied. And eventually the sin ends up being literally eating ourself in a, in a very literal sense if we stay in sin long enough because we are just so addicted, convicted, and he says, you know, no matter what you eat, you're never satisfied. And have you ever been trying to fill your life with something other than God? Whatever that might be, I tried it with work. Never satisfied. And I knew better. <laughs> I was very much like Solomon. He knew God, had asked for wisdom, and then went off and did everything against God and finally came back to God. But he went a long time between the two. I only had a few years before between the two. But I've had other problems. We all try to substitute something in our life a lot of times. We need to be so careful. Because really, God is the only thing that will satisfy Pascal said that we all have a God-shaped hole in our heart that only God can fill. And you know what? Only an infinite God can fill an infinite hole. Doesn't matter how much stuff we put into an infinite hole, there's still going to be a hole. Because it's bigger than anything we can fill it with. 
which takes an infinite God to fill that hole. And when we put God there, we get satisfied. We get filled because he is big enough to fill the hole. Because he put that hole in us that only he can satisfy. The lost world spends their life trying to find it. They'll do it in all kinds of different things. Okay? Fame, fortune, money, drugs, sex, sin, uh, you know, good works, doing good for others, <laughs> philanthropy, whatever it might be, they try to fill this hole in their heart that only God can fill, sometimes with good things. And God says, not enough. Only I can fill it. And when I fill it, all the rest of it is, is the gravy. And he says, no matter what you do, we're going to devour. And eventually we start devouring each other if we go far enough into sin. Then he says, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim and Manasseh. <laughs> I kind of find it interesting that he repeats this in, in two different order. And together they shall be against Judah. And in all of this, his anger shall be, is not turned away and his hand stretched out still. So it says, Manasseh and Ephraim, the northern tribes, are against the southern tribes. And they will fight against each other. They will battle each other. And as you go through the history of Israel, the northern and southern tribes were at each other's throats more often than they were helping each other. And we see that over and over again. Okay, you know, we're, we're supposed to be one. We're going to keep trying to join ourselves together, but we're going to do it our way and not God's way. When the northern tribes broke up, the king goes, well, we can't have the people going to Jerusalem twice a year to, to worship God, so we're going to institute golden calves in the south and north, and north part of the kingdom. And, and he announced, here, here Israel are your gods. Worship them. They're the ones that delivered you out of Egypt. Sound a little bit familiar than going all the way back to the, this, uh, Aaron and the foot of Sinai? Here is your God that delivered you. We know that he was defeated in Egypt, but this is the God that's defeated, you know, that, that, that has delivered you. The king of the northern kingdoms did the same thing. Here's your God. Worship here. And he did it just because he didn't want the people going to Jerusalem. Go, if they go to Jerusalem, eventually they'll want to be one nation again, and I'll lose my kingdom. And so he decided to introduce idolatry, and that golden calf worship went from the time of the start of the northern kingdoms all the way to the end of the northern kingdoms. Their kings never had a righteous king for the entire time of their existence. In the southern kingdom, they had good and bad kings. Several bad kings and a handful of good kings, but they had some good kings that would try to bring people back to God. But he says, sin does not fulfill. And matter of fact, the sin will war against each other. Those who are supposed to be one are going to war against each other. Satan's big job in the church is to get Christians to war against each other, to split churches, to tear churches apart. And when we're supposed to be loving one another, Satan will put, it, put things in together and say, I got you now. This person doesn't like this person, and this person doesn't like that person, and, and, we're you know, and this person's upset that they're all angry at each other, and now they're, they're, they're mad at both people. You know, and he puts all these fractions and, and fissures in the church. And the church starts breaking up because they don't show the love of God. And this is so important for us, living with the love of God and the forgiveness of God. What would the church be like 
if everybody loved each other enough to edify and build up. Now, it wouldn't be when you see certain individuals, oh, no, they're here today. You know, oh, you know, God loves you, and I'm, I'm glad you're here. You may not mean it, but start saying it. Confess, confess what God says. Just make it real. You don't have to go beyond that. Because I'm glad no matter who comes in this church, I'm glad they are here because while they're here, they might hear the word of God. They might get loved enough to be convicted of their sin. Now, I know that there are people that are disruptive. They don't, they cause problems, but you know, my goal is we need them. We need them so that we can show them love. They may not accept it, they may not believe that it's real, but our job is to love them and be as kind to them as we can. That doesn't mean make up lies and, and you know, well, I am so happy you're here. <laughs> don't go that far. Okay, if you're not happy, they go, you know, just say simply, God loves you and I'm glad you're in church. Okay, uh, because you should be. Those two, you should be able to say no matter what. You know, I am so happy you're in church and God really loves you. And it may be all the good that you can say to them as you go hide in the corner. <laughs> But you know, those few words might be just what will break their heart. I have seen people's hearts that get broken. I am looking forward to the revival that God's gonna bring to our town and I think it's gonna start in our church. And it's been really great watching our church. Six years ago, we had a lot of people that didn't like each other, okay? And I've shared with you, I'd stop preaching and while I'm praying, I'd walk to the back door because if I didn't, They'd be gone as soon as I say amen. They were gone out the door faster than I could get to the back door. Okay, now I say amen and nobody leaves. Oh, no. <laughs> or, or, not, or not too many people leave. And I love it. God is bringing people together in our church. Now are they genuinely in love with each other? I don't know, but God is building that love between them. And I love the fact that he's drawing the people together. Do we have perfect unity yet? No, will we ever? Probably not. But I'm going to keep preaching. We're to love one another. We're to, to, to be really looking at these people that we have a hard time loving and saying, that's the person I need to be kind to. That's the person I need to love. Not glaring at them like, what, what do you think you're doing in my church? You know, you, you know, we need to be careful. God loves them. God wants them in the church so that they can learn to be obedient. Because where else are they going to go? I've shared this over and over. I want the lost sinner in the church so they can hear the word of God. Because they're not going to hear the word of God out there. You know, because most of them aren't listening in Christian radio. Most of them aren't listening and reading godly stuff. They're out partying and at the bars and getting bad advice from their, from their non-Christian friends because they seem to accept them. All they want them to do is be as bad and, and, and miserable as they are, but they don't they don't say that to them. You know, and we as Christians drive so many people away because we have this expectation that, well, you know, if you ever get right, I'll, I'll love you. you know, well, my love might be just what helps them get right. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. Lord, help teach everybody who listens to this that they need to love those that are hard to love, that they need to be genuinely caring for those that you've put in their life that are hard to love. We ask you to bless this evening, bless our time as we go about, and all the rest of the things that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.